Well, before we get started, my name is R.J. Coburn. I have been the youth pastor at Bethlehem Covenant Church in Waverly for almost eight years now, and so it's so nice to be with you today. Um, today I'm going to be sharing a text from Zechariah 3. I love preaching from the Old Testament. The Hebrew Bible is so rich and deep, and it allows us to see the New Testament in a new way. Um, because the people that wrote the New Testament were kind of in this culture of the ancient Near East, where all of these stories of the Old Testament would have been like breathing to them. So it allows us to really understand it more. The way that I like to preach is to kind of work my way through the text rather than just reading it um, at the beginning. So that's what I'm going to do. So I might suggest that you flip open to Zechariah 3 verses 1 through 10. And might I suggest that you also write down anything in the text that stands out to you. I found that that is a helpful practice for myself and also helps me formulate maybe questions because sometimes especially in the Old Testament um, things can get a little tricky but it allows us to see kind of connections as we work our way through the text so where we are in Zechariah 3 is that Zechariah is being seen these various visions Showing him that God remembers his people even throughout their exile in a foreign land. So let's go ahead and jump right into the text. Verse 1 says, Then he, that is the angel, showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Uh, I'd like to note really quick that as we go through this passage, Zechariah will be speaking of this throne. And this throne is the great white throne that we see in the book of Revelation. But sometimes he speaks of the angel of the Lord or the messenger of God, right? a pre-incarnate Christ, as the one sitting on the throne, and sometimes it's God himself sitting on the throne. He uses them interchangeably, which may be an Old Testament nod to the idea of the Trinity, really showing us that our Savior is God himself. But, my friends, this is that great white throne of Revelation. It's that thing that invokes fear in some people. But in a practical sense, this is the courtroom that we wake up to every morning. Or every night as we lay our heads down and all those thoughts start running through our heads. We are haunted by our past. We are threatened by our future. And we stand accused in the courtroom of our own minds. We should take note that the word here, Satan, is not actually a proper name. 
though Satan is very real and very personal. But the word here means adversary. This is the prosecutor, the accuser, the one who brings up charges on us before God. In our day-to-day lives, do we not feel like we are constantly on trial? Our social media feeds tell us that we aren't living life to the fullest. The comparisons we construct in our own minds accuse us of not being a good enough parent, a good enough friend, a good enough spouse. Schools have built a culture on telling students they will never get into college if they don't get straight A's. And we wonder why students have this constant undercurrent of anxiety. You know, interestingly enough, my kids uh, in my youth group, they have access to their grades constantly on, on their phones. They can look at exactly where they stand. And that, that's very helpful for them. But in some ways it's not. If there's a placeholder, so they were absent, they didn't do a test, so the teacher puts a placeholder in there, a zero, and it will lower their grade. They are in full panic mode. In full panic mode. Because they, they can tell you what percentage their grade will drop in the overall context, because their GPA or whatever, because they missed one question on one math test in January. This is a constant undercurrent of anxiety. And we all live with a strange undercurrent of anxiety because we feel we are constantly in this courtroom being judged. During this pandemic, many people have had to be teachers, employees, parents, and spouses, all from the corner of their living room. And as we lay our head down, we cannot stop hearing the voice of the accuser reminding us in each and every way that we fall short. When I was young, I greatly feared standing before God at this great white throne judgment at the end of time. But as I got older, I realized that this courtroom that I feared so much is actually a courtroom in which we live our day-to-day lives, constantly hearing the voice of the adversary who stands and accuses us before God. But now something unexpected happens in the courtroom. Look at verse 2. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick that I have snatched from the fire? The judge does not wait for a defense from the accused. He renders a judgment, and that judgment is a rebuke of the accuser. This actually happened to me once in a courtroom. Uh, I got my first speeding ticket here in Nebraska. It was for going four miles an hour over the speed limit. And uh, I feel like I got pulled over because 
I had California plates, but, you know, we'll, we'll set that aside. And uh, I also got a citation for a seatbelt violation. But, I, I, yes, I was going four miles an hour over the speed limit, but I certainly was wearing my seatbelt, largely because that stupid dinging noise would never allow me not to do that. So I'm like, I'm going to fight the ticket. So I go to court. Um, I learned that you can actually submit a plea via fax here in Nebraska. I like to do research then to make things hard for people. I don't know why. But, and so I submitted it via fax. Anyway, when the prosecutor got up there, you know, when my case was called, he said, well, this is his first time in court, so we're going to have him enter a plea. And the judge said, no, he pled via fax. And he's like, oh, oh, and well, the officer couldn't be here due to an issue, so we asked for a continuance. And she said, he's not the one who, well, he's, she said, I don't think that's going to be granted. And the prosecutor said, well, you know if the shoe was on the other foot and he had a problem that you would issue a continuance. And the judge said, he's not the one bringing the charges. You are. And, you know, and I don't know, for some reason, it, it really irritated the judge. And then the judge is looking at the complaint and tells me, well, you'll have to come back in if they, they're going to refile the charges. And so I'm like, okay. And, and then she looks at it and she says, and looks at the prosecutor and goes four miles an hour over the speed limit. Four miles an hour over the speed limit. And then, she, and then she looks back at me. She said, I actually can't just dismiss this case, but I don't think they're going to be refiling it. Right? And so kind of in my own way, I got that kind of freedom due to the rebuke of the judge. <laughs> right? But here we have something greater than that. Here we have God's rebuke of the accuser and it's based on God's choice in which he resides he says the one who has chosen Jerusalem the place I live rebuke you God's choice secures Joshua who as the high priest stands as a representative of Jerusalem it secures him from accusation. Now, theology and philosophy have greatly muddied the waters when it comes to God's choices. But let me say this simply. The idea of God's choice is entirely relational. It's saying, yo, that belongs to me. That's mine. It's relational. 1 Corinthians 3.16 tells us that God, by his spirit, has chosen his dwelling, and that dwelling is with you and me. It's in you and me. This is the fulfillment of the prophets. God's chosen dwelling snatches us from accusation, snatches us from the fire.
Our relationship with God is our salvation. There is a story about a kid who sells the most, a kid who participates in a fundraiser where the person who sells the most magazines, subscriptions for this school fundraiser gets to go on a trip to a local amusement park. So on the bus, there's kids from all the different schools of the area going to the amusement park. And they're all talking about how they sold all these different magazines. I sold 100 descriptions. I sold 500 subscriptions. People are like, whoa. And there's a, then there's a blonde kid sitting in the front of the bus. Just, and they ask him, how many magazines did you sell? And he looks at him and goes, zero. My dad owns this joint. When I get to heaven, it won't be because of the few good things I've done, which are few and far between, but it's because in Christ, my daddy owns that joint. I'm getting in, and you are too, because our daddy owns it. It's relational. God's sovereign choice speaks of his relationship to us. But let's be honest, this salvation seems so distant. It seems far off because we don't feel it. We feel accused. Our minds are anxious. We don't feel acquitted. Why? Because like Joshua in this passage, our clothes are dirty. Verse 3, now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The dirty clothes represent guilt and shame. Joshua, as the high priest, carried the weight of his personal guilt, but also of the guilt of the people he represented. Even the guilt of his family, the guilt of the city of Jerusalem, the guilt of his ancestors. That is what he is dressed in as he stands before the angel. And we are very familiar with guilt. It makes us cower, it makes us want to hide, sew fig leaves together, like it says in Genesis. Right? The church speaks a lot about guilt, about sin and guilt. But what about shame? Shame is an effect of the sin that we bear. But unlike guilt, sin is ca- uh, shame is caused by sin that we may not have committed. Shame is often caused by sin that is committed against us or because of something we really can't control, like you're starving and you steal a loaf of bread. Did you sin? Sure, right? But your hand was forced. We carry the shame of the sin of our ancestors and our society. We carry the shame of the family situation in which we are raised, and now without thinking we have passed on to our children. Often our shame leads us into personal sin that causes guilt and causes the cycle to be never-ending. Jesus refers to this in the book of Matthew when he says anyone who divorces their wife for any reason other than sexual immorality, forces her to commit adultery. The woman did no wrong. The man is guilty, but the effects of his sin have passed shame on to the woman. 
do we not see this so prevalent in our world? One person sins, but the consequences of that sin affect so many people. Many people bear the consequence and the dirtiness of one person's sin. The recovery community has a good language for this. They say alcoholism or addiction is a family disease. The disease causes sinful behaviors to manifest not only in the alcoholic who themselves feel guilt and shame, but in their family. The manipulation, the control, the dishonesty, and other sins manifested by the disease of alcoholism begins to manifest in the sober family members and friends of the alcoholic. The secrets they keep make them just as sick as the alcoholic. Our clothes are filthy, covered in guilt and shame of our own sin, societal sin, sin of our ancestors, and the sin that has been done to us, which is sometimes referred to as Han. Like a white t-shirt begging for a barbecue stain, so our humanity is bent towards really screwing things up, sometimes through our own fault, sometimes through no fault of our own. We stand covered in filthy clothes even after God has shut the mouth of the adversary. Verse 4, the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his dirty clothes. Here, we need to notice something important. God uses people to remove dirty garments. I'm going to say that again. God uses people to remove dirty garments. Our shame and guilt is removed by God objectively through declaration. Your sins are forgiven. But in our day-to-day life, subjectively, God uses the community of faith to remove our dirty clothes, our guilt, and our shame. In John 20, 23, Jesus gives that responsibility to the community of faith. So what about you? Who in the community is helping you take off your dirty garments? And are you removing other people's dirty garments or are you forcing them to retain their guilt and shame by your judgmental actions and attitudes the practice of confession amends and assurance within the community of faith are good starting points and places to remove our dirty clothes especially guilt shame especially when associated with sin committed against us is removed by the community through a practice that we find in Matthew 18. God works through people to remove our guilt and shame, but he doesn't just remove it. He gives us new clothes, his goodness, his righteousness. The verse continues, then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sins and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said that this is Zechariah speaking, place a turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him 
while the angel of the Lord stood by. The turban is a symbol of Joshua's authority as the high priest. This is not only a picture of sin removal, but a restoration of what was lost due to sin. The picture of restoring that which was lost due to sin and death reminds me of another one of my favorite passages, this time from Joel chapter 2, verse 25. The people's sin had led to an army invading and destroying crops and farmland over a period of years. Joel refers to this army as locusts throughout his book. But in Joel 2, verse 25, God tells the people, But I will restore to you the years the locusts have eaten. For many of us, there are years and years of our lives that have been eaten by locusts. God promises that he will restore those years. In the same way, dressed in dirty garments, Joshua's turban had been taken. His place of authority removed. But God restores what has been removed because of sin. This is accomplished by what Jesus has done and by the continuing work of the community of faith. What has been lost in your life because of sin? Either your sin or the sin of somebody else. God promises he will restore it. Are we calling in the community of faith turbans to be placed back onto people's heads? Or are we just calling for their heads? Verse 6, the angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge over my courts, and I will give you a place among those standing here. Like many things in the Christian faith, by most world's religions, this is backwards. Most religions and and even some Christians believe that we walk in obedience first, and that is how our dirty clothes are removed. But here we see God remove sin, restore to the community, and within that community, he's given righteousness. And within the context of that community, now begins to walk a life of obedience to participate in God's life, and to use the clean clothes that God has now given. God accomplishes in us that which he requires. God accomplishes in us that which he requires. Verse 8. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to send my servant the branch. This is a promise of the coming of Christ. Even this whole story points to it because the name Joshua in Greek is the name Jesus. 
So this text, if written in Hebrew, could say Jesus the high priest was standing before God clothed in the sins of the people. I wonder if the book of Hebrews, which speaks of Jesus as our high priest, had this vision in mind. That Jesus comes as our high priest, bearing our sin and dispensing it before the throne. Verse 9, see the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on one stone, which speaks of the omniscience of God. And I will engrave an inscription on it saying, yo, that belongs to me, says the Lord Almighty. And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. The stone here is the cornerstone of the temple. The cornerstone holds the walls of the temple together. In our lives, we have various walls like family and career. And something has to hold it together to make a temple to Almighty God. How does that happen? It happens with the cornerstone. The cornerstone with seven eyes who is Christ our righteousness. Christ as our chief cornerstone brings our walls together to form an identity, to form a building and a temple to Almighty God. As Christ builds his church, we also are individual stones, and Christ is the head cornerstone. He holds us firm and in place so the walls don't crumble. As the temple of God, as the Spirit fills it, sanctifies it, sets it apart for proper use, known as holy. Our sins are removed in that community. And now there is a response. Look at verse 10. In that day, you will invite your neighbor to sit under the vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. Our sins are forgiven, and we are set free for a purpose. And that purpose is radical hospitality. In a world of craziness and chaos, we stand as a rebellion against the chaos of this world. Where politics and masks and viruses divide. The vision of God's people we have here. Those who have been saved and clothed in righteousness is that of radical hospitality. We are free to invite the neighbor to sit under the fig and vine tree, to come see and taste that the Lord is good. We don't have to fear our neighbor. We can serve them in love, knowing that we have clean clothes, that God will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We will spread this message of the greatness of God, the forgiveness of sins, and the clean clothes to our friends and our neighbors. We will stand with people as they stand against the chaos and injustice of this world. And we will live lives of shalom and righteousness with our neighbors 
Yes, the one that we build the high fence for to make a good neighbor. Under our trees. So that we can rest in a place where the peace of God dwells.